Hey guys and girls, how are you all doing? All you Scottish people. Welcome to church. My name is Pete, pastor here at Destiny. If you're visiting with us, see a few new faces. A really warm welcome to you. We're family, we're church, and we're on a mission and God is with us. And uh, we're so glad you could be with us. It's great to worship God. Thank you so much for leading us, guys. Really great to be in God's presence. Uh, we're, we're on a journey in John's Gospel, which is a, one of the most famous books in the Bible. And we're, we don't know how long it's going to take us. We're just going to work our way through verse by verse and just let it impact us as we go through. We believe in the Bible. We believe it's a, an alive book. We believe it's actually the very Word of God. And as we turn to it, God has this incredible ability to speak from the words of Scripture directly into our lives. So open your hearts up. Let God speak to you. Let's pray. Father, we're in your presence, and it's a joy to be here, God. I pray you'd speak right now as we open this magnificent book of the Bible. Pray you'd speak, and you'd change lives. God, maybe some people today are far from you. I pray draw them close to you. I pray those who are in tough times, I pray that encouragement would come. And I pray every single one of us, God, would experience God touching their lives in and through this moment as we turn to the Bible. Help me to speak. Help us to hear. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. A few weeks ago on BBC, uh, who watches BBC Breakfast? I, I put that on while I'm making breakfast in the mornings. And uh, Naga Manchetti, she's one of the presenters. She, she's also on Strictly Come Dancing just now, which I don't watch. Uh, but she, apparently she's on that. <clears throat> she was introducing the next feature, and she was saying that later in the program, Nicholas Sturgeon, uh, the head of the SNP from Scotland, is going to be on the program. And as she was saying this, the one of the technicians put up the wrong picture. That never happens here. But there, it happened. The wrong picture went up, and it was a picture of a gorilla. And that was one of the other stories that they were going to talk about later in the thing, about the gorilla that had escaped from London Zoo. So it was completely unfortunate, completely unfortunate. Nicholas Sturgeon will be joining, and there was this gorilla appeared. Ah, wrong picture, right story. Okay? Now, the thing about Jesus is he never got the picture and the story muddled up. He always had the right picture for the right story. And bear that in mind as we go into this passage. Now, we're in John chapter 7, and it's one of the feasts of the Jews. It's one of the feasts called the Feast of Tabernacles. There were three major public feasts in the year. There was Pentecost, there was Passover, and there was the Feast of Tabernacles, or Feast of Booths. It would last for about seven to eight days, and this is Jesus in that feast. The feasts were there, instigated by God, to tell stories. And Jesus, in the middle of that story being told, the whole story of the feast being told, Jesus stands up and brings a picture which was completely the right picture for the story, and it speaks to our lives 2,000 years later in such a life-transforming way. So let's go to the verses. Thousands would have been there. Thousands of people from all around uh, the surrounding regions would have been in Jerusalem for this festival, and there was hustle and bustle, and in the middle of this, this is what happens. John seven thirty seven. On the last and greatest day of the festival, Jesus stood and said in a loud voice, Let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. By this he meant the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were later to receive. Up till that time, the Spirit had not yet been given, since Jesus had not yet been glorified. On hearing his words, some of the people said, surely this man is the prophet. Others said, he is the Messiah. So this was 
the Feast of Tabernacles, the Feast of Booths. It was in the middle of the feast. In fact, toward, sorry, it was towards the end of the feast. Jesus stands up in the middle and says these great declarations. Um, what happened in the Feast of Booths? Well, very simply, it was a moment to remember. Say remember. They were gathering to remember something that had taken place in their history. They all gathered in Jerusalem, but they didn't stay in houses in Jerusalem. They made temporary shelters, made little booths, tents, temporary shelters. And they were in the streets, all over the streets. They were in the public squares. They were on flat roofs. Any space in Jerusalem and just outside the walls of Jerusalem, it was like a big camping festival. It was like Glastonbury, sort of, sort of. Um, and they all camped out. And this was their moment to remember something that had taken place in their history. And what had taken place in their history was those 40 years where they wandered through a wilderness and lived in temporary shelters. And this was a very vivid way of them remembering. I mean, their history was incredible, like no other nation's history. Their history was that they were ancestors of a man called Abraham, who by a miracle had a child because his wife was barren and she was way beyond the age of childbearing. That child had more children, and before you knew it, a clan, a family emerged, and this family developed, and they lived in Egypt initially. They grew so fast that the Egyptians became envious and jealous of them. As a result, they imposed slavery upon them, and the Jews became slaves in Egypt, thousands of them. They grew to nearly about a million people in Egypt, and they were facing such intense slavery and God raised up a deliverer, a man called Moses. And this isn't a story. This is history. This is accurate. This historically took place in a time and in a place. It's, and it's mind-blowing, the miracles that happened. God used Moses to see great miracles happen. And the ultimate miracle was the parting of the Red Sea, where the Israelites escaped through the ocean, and the, and the, the Egyptian army that pursued them was killed in the ocean. An historic event, an incredible. I believe in a God who can do miracles like that. I believe in a God who's that great. They, from that Red Sea, went into a wilderness. They spend the next 40 years wandering in that wilderness. God miraculously provided for them in that wilderness. And after those 40 years, God brought them into what they called the promised lands, where we now find the land of Israel and Jerusalem situated. It's an incredible historic account. And God did not want them to forget, because as human beings, we have this tendency. God does something remarkable in our lives, and we have this incredible inability to remember it. So he did this thing where three times in the year, they remembered key moments in their history. And this is one of those moments where they remembered, we didn't used to live in houses. We didn't used to have a land of our own. We were wandering for 40 years in a wilderness thank you, God, for what you've done. That was what was happening here. And, that, and, and then on the last day of the feast, something really special happens. The high priest went down to the pool of Siloam, got a jug of water, scooped water out of the pool of Siloam, and led a procession of people through the water gate all the way up to the temple right in the center of Jerusalem. And as he led this procession, there was joy, there was celebration, there was exuberance. The people were singing psalms recorded in the Bible, singing them. And it, it, was, it was notoriously exuberant. Someone, one of the rabbis said, if you, if you haven't been to the Feast of Tabernacles, you don't know what joy is like. Because it was such an exuberant, celebratory environment. It was loud. It was noisy. And as the priest made his way up to the temple, got to the temple, arrived at the altar in the temple, did seven laps with this jug of water around the altar, and then poured out the water before the Lord. 
as his way of giving thanks. And what was happening there was they were remembering how in the wilderness, God not only sustained them, but God provided them water from a rock in the wilderness. Incredible. Water from a rock, a total miracle. It says in Exodus 17, verse 6, God commanded Moses, strike the rock and water will come out of it for the people to drink. And Moses struck the rock and water gushed forth. And it was ample supply for the million people in that wilderness to be provided for. And God made provision for the 40 years they were in the wilderness. So this festival was a moment to remember. Now, on the last day of the feasts, on that day when the high priest was taking that pitcher of water through the water gate up to the temple area, on the way up, in the midst of all that celebration, in the midst of all the noise and hustle and bustle, you imagine it'd be hard to hear yourself think. That's why it says in that moment, verse 37, Q Jesus, on the last and greatest day of the festival, Jesus stood up and said in a loud voice, he had to be really loud because the crowds were so noisy, in a loud voice, let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as Scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within him. Jesus, in the midst of a celebration which was remembering how God had provided for them in the past, stood up and he stuns the crowds. He said, actually, I am the one through whom you can be satisfied. He's saying, you're all thirsty. Now, you see, they were no longer in the wilderness. They were no longer physically parched and looking for thirst-quenching water. But he said, nevertheless, and this is a message to us 2,000 years later, nevertheless, human beings are thirsty. This world is thirsty. There's an ultimate thirst in every human soul that can only be satisfied with an encounter, a live encounter with the living God who is the supplier of living water. And that's what he was saying. It says in Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 3 to 4, the apostle Paul says, they drank from the spiritual rock. The rock was Christ. So that moment in the Old Testament, when that rock was struck and water came gushing out, that was a picture. Now, it happens. It was an historic event. But God used history, the journeys of the Israelites, to communicate bigger realities. And the bigger reality that God is a prophetic picture. In fact, they're all through the Bible. Prophetic pictures pointing to the one who was coming, that is Jesus. And that rock was a prophetic picture. The rock that was struck that would gush forth water was a prophetic picture of the one who was coming who would provide sustenance and thirst-quenching life for humanity forever for anyone who came to him. And this world is like a desert. See, human beings are thirsty. They've been thirsty since time began. Uh, I came across this statistic published by the Gordon Cromwell University. They said that in 1970, 82% of the world's population was religious. In 2010, 88% of the world's population was religious. It's projected that by 2020, 90% of this world's population will be religious. I'm not talking about Christian. I'm talking about all religions. I'm talking about people who believe in something else other than just this physical, tangible world. People who believe in the spiritual realm. People who believe in the existence of God or a deity, whatever religion you're from. 
human beings are religious. Only 2.5% are atheists on planet earth. It's not natural to be an atheist. If people aren't told anything else, people are by and large religious. People, as they were discovering tribes in the middle of nowhere, in deepest, darkest, you know, Glasgow and places like that, they found tribes that worshipped in different ways. Why? Because human beings have this fundamental inbuilt desire for God and worship. came across an article in The Telegraph, 24th of November, 2008, and it's entitled, Children Are Born Believers in God's Academics Claim. It said that Dr. Justin Barrett, senior researcher at the University of Oxford Center for Anthropology and Minds, claims that young people have a predisposition to believe in a supreme being. He says that young children have faith even when they have not been taught it by their family or at school, and argues that even those raised in a, on a desert island would come to believe in God, says this anthropologist from Oxford University. Interesting article. It's interesting when my kids were a lot younger, and I, I would quite often, I would take them to school. At, you, know, you know, I loved that, walking hand in hand with my kids, taking them to the school and dropping them off. I absolutely loved that. And one of the things, you often got into conversation with other mums and dads who were dropping their kids at school. On two independent occasions, I had parents coming to me because they kind of knew that I had something to do with God. Um, they, you know, they said, my kids are asking me questions about God. We've never told them anything about God. We're not religious. What do I say to them? I had, on two independent occasions, I had parents coming to me, talking about their kids, asking, what do we say to our kids about God? One of them said, do you have a Bible? My kid's asking about the Bible. Now, I don't know how the kid got the idea, because it's a secular school. And how does that happen? Why? Because we've been created in the image of God. Every human being has this inbuilt natural desire. It's unnatural not to believe in God. You've got to be convinced by a lot of deluded, strange arguments that there's no God, and it's convenient for you to believe that, because it gets you out of being accountable to not believe in God. But within our very being, it is natural to believe in God. Augustine said it this way, that great church father from years and years ago, he said, we were made for you, O God, and our hearts are restless until we have found our rest in you. So the world is like a desert. People are thirsty. The problem we've got is even though we know that God exists, most of us turn to secondary things to try and satisfy primary things. We turn to other things to satisfy thirsts that only God could satisfy. Our thirsts are so great that only God's could satisfy the scale of your thirsts. You are such a magnificent being that you will only be satisfied with God. Hobbies could not satisfy you, magnificent being. Sports, career, lust, sin, pornography, that couldn't satisfy you. Sinful pursuits, they can't satisfy you. Your great career path, those great accolades and titles and academic, that cannot satisfy you. All the money in the world could not satisfy you, magnificent beings. Only gods could satisfy you. You're that incredible. You're, you're designed in such a way that only God could satisfy you. And trying to find another way to fill that ultimate gap is like trying to fit a jigsaw piece in the wrong, in the wrong space. It just doesn't fit. 
And only when God fits in the perfect space does the picture come complete and does life make sense. Jeremiah the prophet, speaking from the very heart of God, communicated this point to the people by saying this, Jeremiah 2.13, my people have committed two sins. They have forsaken me, the spring of living water, and they have dug their own cisterns, broken cisterns that cannot hold water. Every attempt that we make to find satisfaction outside of God, God said it's like drinking toilet water. It's rubbish. It's unsatisfying. And it leaks. It's like drinking toilet water, all those other pursuits, all those secondary things. Some of them in and of themselves aren't sinful, like your job or your hobby. Not sinful, but they're not big enough to be your ultimate satisfaction. You need God's. God's the one who can satisfy. So where are you looking for satisfaction? Jesus cries out and he says to a thirsty world, let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Here's the question. How can Jesus satisfy? How is it that he satisfies? Let's go back to the picture that pointed to Jesus. The picture was the rock, remember? Let's go back to Exodus when they were in the wilderness and they struck the rock. Exodus 17 verse 6, Moses was told, strike the rock and water will come out of it for the people to drink. And this is a picture of Jesus. Jesus was struck. And when Jesus was struck, all of a sudden, life-giving, forgiveness, acceptance, power, grace flowed from God's towards us when Jesus was struck. That moment opened up the way open up the wells. We'd, we'd jam-crammed full those wells. We'd rammed those wells so full of our sins that the well had stopped flowing. But Jesus' death on the cross, boom, that strike released everything. And the life-giving love of God and the flow of God's eternal life comes your way because of the cross. That's the good news. It's Jesus being struck that means that that river flows towards you. It's Jesus being struck that means that river flows towards our city, towards your friends and family, because Jesus was struck on the cross. We had years ago when the church was really small, we had a dear gentleman join our church, a guy called Jack, and he, he, was, he stood out because he was the only guy over 20 in the church. Now, he was about 70, so it was like, big gap. We were the youth group. He was the main congregation, Okay. And we loved it because we'd go around to Jack's house and, you know, he would give you little cups of tea in a proper teacup and he would give you rich tea biscuits with it. And we would go around and hang out with Jack and Jack would tell you stories from the olden days. And one of the stories he told me, which was fascinating, was he was in the Second World War and he was carrying a box of ammunitions on the front line along with one of his, his companions. Jack was quite a short guy and he was carrying this box of ammunitions. Two of them were carrying it. And Jack had a slightly sore back so he asked, instead of being at the front of the box, any chance I could go around and carry at the back of the box? So his friend, who was about this much taller than him and who was quite strong, his friend went to the front. So they carried this box of ammunitions behind a wall on the front line in Europe in, during the World War II. And a sniper took a shot in a gap in the wall and hit his friends right in the jaw. The bullet went right through, through his jaw, out the other side of his cheek. And the guy lived, but only just. Jack was so shaken up by that, he suddenly realized that if they hadn't have swapped places, Jack being this much shorter, that bullet would have gone straight through his head. 
And he realized, and he said, this is how he said it to me. He said, Peter, it was like that guy took the hit so I could get a second chance at life. And that's exactly what Jesus Christ did on the cross. Jesus took the hit. He took the death blow. He paid the price for all the sin and all the corruption in our souls that would have sunk us to hell. Jesus died in our place. On the third day, he rose again. And through him being struck, a river flows that gives you not just a second chance at life, but eternal life. Awesome life. Full life. How do you experience this life? Jesus put it this way in the verses. Look at what he says. Verses 37 to 38. Let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes. That's how you experience this. Whoever believes. Say believes. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. There was a, an old gentleman who had never flown in his life. And he had his first flight, international flight, and he was visiting his relatives. And when he got off the plane, someone said to him, so, so how was it? And he said, it was okay. It was okay. I was a bit nervous, but I didn't put my whole weight on the plane. <laughs> I didn't put my whole weight in it. When it comes to Jesus, you can put your whole weight on Jesus. That's what it means to believe. Believing doesn't mean I vaguely believe that Jesus died for me and rose again. Believing means you place your whole weight on that truth. One day you're going to breathe your last. You better hope you've placed your whole weight on Jesus because he's the Savior. You're not the Savior. You can't save yourself. Place your whole weight on Jesus, the Savior. And that's what it means to believe. As you do that, this life flows towards you. Believe in Jesus. Now, let's go back again to the picture. Remember the Feast of Tabernacles, remembering the time when they were in the wilderness. And then that last day of the feast when the water, remembering the water coming out of the rock. Did you know there was two occasions when water came out of the rock in that 40 year of wanderings? The first one was at the very beginning of the time in the wilderness. The second time it happened was 39 years later, just before they entered into the promised lands. And let me read to you that record. Numbers chapter 20, verses 8 to 12. God said to Moses, the people were complaining, they were thirsty. God said to Moses, take the staff, you and your brother Aaron, to gather the assembly together and speak to that rock before their eyes and it will pour out its water. You will bring water out of the rock for the community so that they and their livestock can drink. Then Moses raised his arm and struck the rock twice with his staff. Water gushed out and the community and their livestock drank. But the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, because you did not trust me enough to honor me as holy in the sight of the Israelites, you will not bring this community into the lands that I give them. You notice the difference here. Moses struck the rock again. 40 years ago, he struck the rock. This time, God didn't tell him to strike the rock. God told him to speak to the rock, because the rock only needs struck once. Speak to the rock, but Moses struck the rock, and there were severe consequences. It meant that Moses didn't get the privilege of taking the people into the promised land that they had been heading towards for 40 years. And that might seem severe consequences. Why was the consequences there? Well, firstly, he was disobedient. 
he should have spoken to the rock, but instead he struck the rock. But secondly, he broke the picture. The picture was a huge picture that God was communicating to the world that Jesus would be struck and that life would flow, but striking it twice broke the picture. And that's the fundamental reason why God did not permit Moses to enter into the promised lands. The picture was clear. You see, you need to understand that Jesus only needed struck once for eternal provision of life for the world. You need to understand that. It's so clear and important. Brennan Manning, the author, describes when he was in the war with his friend Ray. Now, he and Ray had grown up together. They'd done everything together. They bought their first car together when they were teenagers. They went on their first double date together. Um, they, they hung out together. They, did every, they enrolled in the army together. They ended up in the front line in the war together. And there they were together in a foxhole in Europe during World War II. It, that night, Ray uh, and Brennan were chatting, and Brennan was reminiscing about their childhood and talking about some of the things they used to get up to. And Ray was listening to Brennan speak, and Ray was just enjoying a, a bar of chocolate as they were sitting there in the cold in this foxhole on the front lines in World War II. In that moment, a live grenade was thrown and went into the foxhole where they were. Ray looked at Brennan, he put his chocolate down and fell on the grenades and took the impact, dying instantly, but sacrificing his life for Brenning. Brenning was utterly blown away. Sorry, that was the wrong. He was, he was encouraged. Years later, I didn't actually mean that. Years later, years later, he went to see Ray's mum, and, and he, he, Ray's mum lived in Brooklyn in America, and, and he, he was talking about Ray, and he, and he said, do you think Ray loved me? And Ray's mom got really irate and stood up and pointed her finger in Brennan's face and says, how much more does he have to do to show that he loves you? And in that moment, Brennan said, it was like he had an epiphany moment. He imagined himself at the foot of the cross, looking at Jesus on the cross and asking, do you think he loves me? And Mary coming up and pointing her finger in your face and saying, how much more does he have to do to say that he loves you? You see, he was only struck once. You don't need him to be struck again. Once was enough. One strike, one communication of love, one atonement for sin, one life-giving strike on his death and his resurrection, which makes life available for all eternity, for all people to cover all sin. That's what Jesus did on the cross. And that is remarkably good news. It says in Hebrews chapter 7, verse 27, unlike other high priests, he does not need to offer sacrifices day after day. He sacrificed for their sins once for all when he offered himself. So don't strike the rock again. You don't need to strike the rock again. But many people in their religiousness are, and that's not necessary. You remember the film Saving Private Ryan? Based on a true story, where elite troopers were sent in because this one guy, Ryan, he, had, he was one of five and his other four siblings had died in the war and Ryan was the only one who was left. And the home office decided that they, they wanted for the sake of his, of his dear mother to see that Ryan survived the war. So they sent this elite group of troopers in behind the front lines to rescue Ryan. 
And it's a dramatic movie. And at the end, just at the end of the whole battling, you see Tom Hanks, who was the only guy left in the team that was there to rescue Ryan. Tom Hanks is there dying in Ryan's arms. And he leant over and whispered into Ryan's ear, you need to earn this as he died. And then the last scene in Saving Private Ryan is, is a scene where you see Ryan now is an older man going back to the war grave of the person, Tom Hanks, who, who had laid his life down to actually rescue Ryan from that predicament in Europe. And he, he, he falls down before this war grave and, he's, and he starts speaking to the grave and saying, I've been here time after time throughout my life. I've done everything I can to live this life. I hope that I've earned this. And the good news is that when Jesus died on the cross, he didn't say, you need to earn this. Jesus' last word on the cross was, it is finished. It is finished is a declaration. That's a good news. And listen, Christianity is not a sacrifice you make. It is a sacrifice you trust. When Jesus died on that cross, it was completely sufficient. But every time you judge your acceptability based on your performance, you're like striking that rock again. You don't need to strike the rock again. Your acceptability before God has nothing to do with your performance. If it did, even on your best day, you're doomed. You, you, you're striking the rock every time you come before God and think, man, my prayers won't get answered this week. I've had a really bad week. What? Your prayers were never answered based on how good a week you had had. Your base were always, did you not, do you not pray in Jesus' name? That's how I pray. That, that means on the basis of Jesus. That means on the, everything to do with what he did in that cross. Nothing to do with my goodness. Everything to do with his goodness. Everything to do with his power. I can even come before God into the very throne room because blood was shed to make that access possible. So you, every time you judge how oh God might not accept my prayers this week because I've had a bad week. What? You're like striking the rock again. You've gone all religious. You haven't understood that the stone only needed to be struck once. And then that life-giving flows. Every time you come begging for God to accept you, you're like striking the rock again. Did you not come to him in that moment? You remember the day and the hour? And you said, Jesus, I trust in you to be my savior. From that point forward, your acceptance before God was a settled issue completely. And every time you come, every time since then, you come and beg for his acceptance. It's like slapping him in the face. It's like saying what you did wasn't sufficient. What he did was completely robust and sufficient for every sin you could ever commit. That's what the cross is. You don't need to strike it twice. It was struck once and then life flows. When Jesus said, it is finished, it was a Greek word. It was the Greek word tetelestai. Tetelestai means ended, completed, fulfilled, finished, done. It was, it's good news. It was often used in business transactions. So if there was an outstanding debt that was in your name and you had this parchment piece of paper and it described the debt that you paid, tetelestai was the word that was used to describe the, the debt is paid and it was stamped on that piece of parchment paper to declare that the debt has been written off. When Jesus said tetelestai as he died on the cross, he was saying the debt is paid, complete, finished. You see, your sins are so forgiven. Question, 
When did he pay the price for your sins to be forgiven? The answer is 2,000 years ago. Question, how many of your sins did God know about before you were born? And the answer is, God knew about all your sins before you were born. Question, how many sins did he pay for on the cross? The answer is, all of them were paid for on the cross. And the question, when he paid for them on the cross, how many of your sins were future? And the answer is, all of them were future. So some of you get into this religious mindset that, yeah, I can understand him forgiving my past, but what about my future? Now, I know when you've come to Jesus, it's more inexcusable your sins in the future. Completely inexcusable. Mine too. And I'm blown away by his love, therefore I don't want to sin. That's why I feel it's inexcusable. It bothers me because I love him. And by the way, that's the indicator that you're saved. But you need to understand that all of your sins were paid for. All of your future sins were paid for in the past. He knew about them all. He paid for them all. Tetelestai is paid for. That's great news, and that's what Jesus has done for us. So you don't need to strike the rock. The second time, Moses should have spoken to the rock. You see, speaking to the rock is an expression of faith. Speaking to the rock, you don't need to strike it again. It's been struck. The water is now flowing. You just need to speak. You see, when Jesus died on that cross, he doesn't need to die again. That was once for all. All provision for life and eternity was made in that moment in his death and in his resurrection. All provision. So what do you do now? You just need to talk to him. You just need to come to him in prayer and ask him for everything that is needed for life and for future and for challenges you face. You just need to speak to the rock now because the rock has made all provision. He was already struck. There was a visitor from a developing world country. He came to the UK and he came into... It was a public place where there was a gym and it had this fountain, you know, a drinking fountain. And he got to this fountain and he'd never seen one of these in his life before. He knew water came out and he'd seen other people get water coming out, but he couldn't figure out how, because there was no button, there was no tap, there was nothing to make this water come out. And he, he, did, he didn't know what to do with this water fountain. And in frustration, he was about to walk away until someone came up and pointed out that actually you just needed to go really close to it and it had an infrared sensor and the water automatically came out. And that's exactly what it's like with Jesus. You, all you need to do to access now what is available, you need to struck again, you just need to come real close and believe him. You need to speak to the rock and all the provision will flow. That's what Jesus has done. So Jesus, in this moment, in this festival, the festival is all about looking back. Remember how you went through that wilderness. Remember how God provided for you through that rock that was struck and life-giving water flew. Jesus said, I'm the rock. I'm the one who will be struck. He was pointing to the cross. Within a short time, six months from this moment, Jesus was going to die on the cross and rise again so that him being struck would release the life of God to the world, to our city, to your life for the last 2,000 years and until Jesus returns. That's what Jesus was saying. But he was also pointing ahead to another event that would take place after the cross. He was pointing forward even further. Feast of Tabernacles looked back. The picture of the rock, the priest carrying the water, remembering the rock, 
look back. Jesus pointed forward to the cross and the resurrection, and Jesus pointed forward beyond that to the day of Pentecost, a future event. Jesus says in verses 37 to 39, anyone who is thirsty, come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. By this he meant the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were later to receive. Up to that time, the Spirit had not been given, since Jesus had not yet been glorified. You see, the reason the water wasn't flowing is because the stone hadn't been struck yet. When Jesus died on the cross and rose again, the stone was struck. He ascended back to the Father, and the outpouring happens. And the reason, see, the Holy Spirit, it's the picture here of the Holy Spirit that will come and indwell us as believers. And the question I've got is this, how can the Holy Spirit come and take up residence in an unholy person? That's not even possible, surely. There can't be a mixture of holy and unholy. And this is exactly why the Golgotha, this is exactly why the cross needed to precede Pentecost. Because on the cross, unholy was declared holy. Sin was taken away. You were forgiven. You were accepted. You were made acceptable, totally righteous, as righteous as Jesus is before the Father, is as you are before the Father if you are a believer today. As accepted as Jesus is before the Father, is as accepted as you are before the Father. As able to pray to the Father as Jesus was before the Father, is as able as you are to pray to the Father in Jesus' name because of Jesus, because you are in Christ. And as a result, the Holy Spirit can now take up residence in a holy people. Not holy because of our performance, but holy because of His performance. We have been given this gift of holiness, and therefore the Holy Spirit can come and take up residence in us. You see, this life flows to us from the cross and the resurrection, but this life flows through us through the day of Pentecost. And on the day of Pentecost, it's recorded for us in Acts chapter 2, verses 1 to 4. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place, and suddenly a sound like a blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. You see, the church isn't a community of people who try to be like Jesus or try to live like Jesus. The church is a community of people where Jesus lives. He lives among us. He's here just now. He fills us with his presence and power and wants to flow through us. This is an amazing account, a true account. I remember growing up in a church, that, a wonderful church, but didn't really talk about this kind of stuff. I became a Christian when I was 15. I started reading the Bible and started reading in it verses like this where people were filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke in tongues, sometimes prophesied. And it, from that point forward, it, it, it seemed to be the catalyst for growth and church expansion and ground being taken and miracles happening. 
I remember being so impressed by this that one night I went over to my friend's house. I'd heard about this. I'd, we weren't in a church that talked about it, but I'd heard about these experiences happening even today. And I figured if God hasn't changed, he'll still do these things today. And that evening I went to a friend's house and I said, look at these verses. I showed him verses like this one we just read from Acts chapter 2. And I said, how about we ask God that would do, God would do that for us? And my friend Brian, he didn't really know much about it either. But with simple faith, in his bedroom, I got down on my knees and he placed his hands on my head and he asked, God, would you fill Peter just like you filled people in the book of Acts way back 2,000 years ago? Would you fill Peter now with your Holy Spirit? And in that moment, I suddenly felt the presence of God. I just felt the tangible presence. You know when you're in the presence of God and you know you're in the presence of God, but then you, you know you're in the presence of God. Yeah? You're like, oh, wow, I really know I'm in the presence of God now. And it becomes very, very real. That's what happens. Next thing I know, something started happening. And next thing I know, a language started happening. <laughs> and I started speaking a language I'd never learned fluently. It started as a whisper, really quiet, like a whisper. And that night I went home and lay in my bed and spoke in this language I'd never learned and every day I pray in tongues. It's part of my devotional time. Uh, the Bible says the one who prays in tongues edifies himself. It's like doing a spiritual bench press. It builds you up on the inside, makes you strong. For life, we need to be strong. And I believe it's a unique gift. It's, it's unique because it's the only one of the nine gifts of the Spirit that didn't happen in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, there was miracles, words of knowledge, prophecy. All that happened in the Old Testament. But tongues was unique to the New Testament. It's unique in that all the other gifts are for the benefit of others, but this one is for the benefit of you. And therefore, I believe, actually, not in a gathered context, in a gathered context, only a few. Paul says, do all speak in tongues? And the answer is no, because that's in a gathered context. It would be a rabble if everyone spoke in tongues in a gathered context. However, in a unique individual one-to-one basis, I believe this is a gift that's available to everyone. Mark 16 says, these signs will accompany those who have believed. One of them is they'll speak in tongues. I believe that is available for you. Let me just quickly illustrate. Can I have that, um, my prop? Thank you so much. You can just bring it around this way. Or, or you can go that way. No, no, I just, thank you so much. Thank you. That's brilliant. That's your appreciation for the deliverer of the prop. You see, the way I see it is, okay, say four words with me. Thirst, Believe, Believe. receive, Receive. flow. Flow. That's how you're filled with the Holy Spirit. You start off thirsty, like a dry sponge. Thirsty means you're bothered. The person who says, oh, well, if God wants to give me that, then yeah, okay. Well, God will say, well, whatever. Are you bothered? Do you have any idea the price that was paid for this gift to be available? Don't be on the fence. Be thirsty. Say thirsty. So that's your demeanor. Lord, I thirst. Secondly, believe. You know, Jesus said that those who believe, rivers will flow. Believe and receive. So I remember when I just got on my knees in my friend's bedroom, I actually believed. I I knew I hadn't had any experience or frame of reference for it, and that maybe helped me. I just came with a simple faith. You haven't changed. You give this gift. I got on my knees and he gave me a fresh. And did I have the Holy Spirit before that? Yeah, of course, I was a Christian. 
I was saved. I knew Jesus. But was there an experience called the baptism of the Holy Spirit, which typically, according to the Bible, happens second to your conversion? Yes, that is the case. When you read your Bibles, you'll see it. And in fact, this afternoon, and according to the pattern, that's what I'm going to be teaching on. But you need to understand, this is available for you. You can come with simple faith, ask God, get someone to pray for you, and believe and receive. As simple as that. Receiving means thank you. And what happens is when you're baptized with the Holy Spirit, the word baptism means to submerge. It's like you've got this dry sponge, thirsty. You're baptized. You're submerged. All of a sudden, you are now filled as well as immersed. You have received something into yourself. And then what happens? So it's thirst, believe, receive. What's the last words? Flow. Flow. So all of a sudden, it goes from being something, oh, I'm thirsty for this. Did you get the point? Did you folks in the back get the point? How many people in the front would like me to illustrate the point again? How many people in the back would like me to illustrate the point again? Yes, yes, I, I, think, I think the guys, I think the guys, no! I'm so sorry, my wife's here. I'm dead, okay. But what happens is you believe, you, you're thirsty, you come thirsty, you believe that you receive the power of the Holy Spirit, and all of a sudden what happens is you start to be a distributor of life. Jesus is the ultimate distributor of life because he was filled. But you have to understand that there is a flow of life to you because of the cross and the resurrection. But because of Pentecost, there can be a flow of life through you. You're saved by believing in Jesus. But by receiving also the baptism with the Holy Spirit, you become a conduit through which the power of God can flow. Edinburgh is thirsty. Edinburgh needs this life of God to flow to it. But also Edinburgh needs this life of God to flow through us in this city. There was a story of a guy as he was walking towards this farmhouse in the distance. He could see a person working a pump, working this pump relentlessly, working this pump, consistently working this pump. And as he got closer, he was, he was thinking, man, this guy is tirelessly working this pump. He was impressed by his perseverance and his consistency. And as he got closer and closer and closer to it, he suddenly realized there was actually a wooden cutout of a guy that had hinges on its elbows and it was attached to a pump. Okay? It wasn't actually a real guy, it was just a wooden cut out of a pump, pumping this thing. And actually, so all of a sudden he realized, whoa, what was going on here? It was a real pump. It was linked to a well, a spring. And it wasn't the man that was pumping the water, it was actually the water, the force of that spring that was causing this mechanism to move the man. And when you see a person being used of God, don't think, wow, they got God to do stuff. No, no, think, God got them to do stuff. It wasn't that they moved God's, God moved you. When God wants to do great things in a city, great things are possible with God. Anything's possible with God. Miracles are possible with God. Church expansion, like, like we've never seen before, is possible with God. Your family coming to know God, that's all possible with God. And how does God do it? Not by might, not by power, but by the Holy Spirit. That's always how he does it. Be a recipient be a receiver, be a conduit through which this life can flow into this great city. Let's pray. Thank you. Thank you, God. Jesus, thank you. You were struck so that life could flow. 
Thank you, you were struck so that forgiveness could flow. Thank you, Jesus, you were struck and there never needs to be another striking because there was one struck and he did it for everyone. One man for all people. One sacrifice. Sufficient. Thank you, Jesus Christ. Thank you, risen Savior Jesus. Glorify you as the one who can save human beings. Glorify you as the one who alone can satisfy the deepest longing of the human heart. Glorify you as the one who longs to touch our lives and city through us. Thank you, God. Thank you. In his presence, take a moment to pray. Just in your own way, just ask him, respond to him, draw near to him. Nothing you need to do. What you need to do is believe. Just keep your hand on the pump. Let him do the work. Trust the one who was struck. He who believes in him, rivers of living water will flow. So believe in him. Affirm your belief in him. Maybe today you're here and you're thirsty. Maybe you've been trying to satisfy that divine thirst with completely secondary things. And right now, I'm not talking about someone here who's not a believer. I'm talking about someone who is a believer. And you know God is great, but you've allowed other things to become greater. You've become other pursuits to become more passionate than your pursuit for God. Some of those things are sinful. Some of those things are just things. But God's no longer the greatest thing in your heart. And today, God loves you so much. He calls you to repent and dethrone other gods and enthrone him afresh in your soul. Maybe some of you here today, maybe you've never trusted in Jesus. And today you're hearing about the one who can satisfy the ultimate longing of your soul. And I want to tell you, he's here just now. And he is just a prayer away. He has done everything for you. On the cross, you were on his mind. Everything you've done or ever will do sinfully was paid for on the cross. All those things that would stop you accessing the presence of God, all those sins were paid for on the cross and in his resurrection. Now it's your response. Will you believe and place all your weight today and for the rest of your life on the Savior, Jesus? He loves you so much and he calls you to himself today. He says, put your faith in me. Now step out. Take the step. You know you were born for this. You were not born to live without God. You were born to know God. Today's your day. Respond in faith. If that's you today, let me help you connect with them. Very simply, I'm going to lead you in a prayer and I invite you to pray this prayer with me, just under your breath, just one line at a time and let this be your response to God. Pray, dear Lord God, thank you for your great love for me. Thank you for your great plan of salvation. Jesus, thank you for coming into this world and being willing to die on the cross and rise again so my sins could be cleansed 
so my life could be forgiven no matter what. I could have new life, an eternal life. I turn away from my old ways. Today, Jesus, risen Savior, I choose to follow you. Be everything to me. Be Lord of my life. Take first place in my heart. Thanks for hearing my prayer.